Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis from Elsevier, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the pandemic and beyond. Hi, I'm Shivaglani. Regular listeners to Raise the Line know that so-called rare diseases aren't really rare when you consider up to 30 million Americans are affected by them directly. That's nearly 10% of the U.S. population and makes it likely that there's probably someone you know who is impacted or you know one of their colleagues, friends, or loved ones. That fact has hit home to those of us at Osmosis over the last few months as we've started planning a major focus on rare diseases for 2023, which we're calling the Year of the Zebra. Several teammates have come forward to share their rare disease stories, and we'll be sharing some of those with you on the podcast, starting with our Director of Nursing Education, Dr. Maria Frommer, and her husband, Jack, who are with us today. So thank you both for taking the time to join us. Thanks for having us. So, um, you know, when we are, whenever we do these uh, two-person interviews, um, I like to call on, call on people specifically to answer different things. So I'm going to start with you, Maria, because obviously a lot of our team knows you really well. Uh, and a lot of our audience has benefited directly from the work that you lead for us in nursing education. So for those who haven't had the opportunity to, to hear you on the podcast yet, Maria, do you mind ta- telling us a bit about your um, professional highlights and, and what drew you to the nursing profession? <laughs> sure, Shiv. Uh, thanks for having us on the podcast again. Really appreciate it. And the opportunity to kind of give our story. I think it's important, especially since, you know, we're going through this currently with this rare uh, disease diagnosis. Uh, Jack and I met uh, back when I was going through uh, working myself through nursing school as a single mom. I worked construction and Jack and I were friends for a good 11 years. Uh, we finally hooked up and we actually this month will be 25 years. Huh? Yes. Congrats. So <laughs> we're married for about uh, 25 years. Uh, eventually, I did become a nurse. And uh, my after I got my first nursing degree, then I started into getting into education and whatnot. So I've been in education and also a practicing family nurse practitioner for about 20 years now. I've been with Osmosis since April as the director of nursing education, where I lead a very creative team of uh, nurse educators. Uh, and we create osmosis videos for undergraduate and graduate nursing. I also teach in nursing. I teach undergraduate and graduate. Yeah, I know it's amazing. And, and your team is is wonderful, obviously, and just celebrated our milestone of over 600 nursing videos that were just released. So congrats to, to you all on that. More importantly, congrats to, to you two on celebrating 25 years together. So let's turn to you, Jack. Uh, can you tell us a bit about some of your uh, personal and career highlights? I did construction work as a... Uh... Uh, my father, something that my father did, and I just I did that when I got out of high school, and you know, that's that's my highlight. I played played music in bands, did all all kind of crazy stuff. <laughs> Back of my kid, but that's awesome. <laughs> I thought it was funny though, Shiv, uh, with Jack. His uh, so he was in high school and he was in this special program. It was a pre med program. Kids that had a very high interest in going to med school or nursing school. They had a special program for him. And he got out of, he graduated high school in that summer. His dad said, come on, kid, you're coming with me. We don't have money for you to go to the college. You're a little, you're a little short. That was, that was like late 70s. Like I graduated 80 and we had just been in a recession. So the country was, yeah, there wasn't, there wasn't money. There wasn't money there. So he said that you're going to, you're going to work with me tomorrow. You're not going down. You're not going to the Jersey Shore for the summer with your friends. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And then he saw me going through school and said, forget it. I'm not doing it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, absolutely. Well, I mean, that, that's that's sometimes how things happen. Obviously, we're going through a recession right now, and people are obviously going through different decision making. Uh, do I go back to school or not? Uh, and obviously, I have a, I have a news to share on that front. But Jack, so let's go back to you. I know, unfortunately, you've been dealing with this health issue since I think June. You're diagnosed with the rare disease or zebra retroperitoneal fibrosis. Uh, which I never heard about in med school, uh, and I doubt many of our listeners have heard about it. So can you take us to the very beginning of your experiences and talk about some of the first symptoms you noticed? I had been diagnosed with uh, like irritated, when I was 28, irritated bowel, which progressed into Crohn's disease. So I had been getting treated since I was 28 for that. So I had had a doctor that was... Um, I had a doctor that was getting ready to retire, a gastroenterologist, and he uh, he said, let's get a CAT scan of your digestive tract. Make sure everything's on track before I before you go with somebody new. I had that done, and I was going to my family practitioner. I was having some sinus issues. We were treating it with, uh, we were treating it with short course of steroids. So it kept returning, and then I got some blood work done, and he said, your uh, creatinine rate is high, showing that you're having a kidney issue. And I had got the CAT scan the same time in the same time frame, and we forwarded it. And it showed I had a mass in my retroperitoneal area, a, a thin mass, but it was spanning across, spanning across the pelvis. So when we, he looked at that, he concluded that my, my uh, uterus were being displaced from that and that's uh, um, that's what you get with retroperitoneal fibrosis and then it 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 uh restricts your it restricts your kidney function so we went to the hot but he suggested going and getting nephrostomy tubes put in and when i was on immunosuppressors for the crohn's so oncology came in and they they wanted you know we talked about biopsies and stuff because um I was on immunosuppressors, and that leads you to be susceptible to lymphoma. So they did biopsies, didn't find anything conclusive. So our uh, our interventional radiologist said he thought it was he thought it was this uh, retroperitoneal fibrosis. So Maria Maria went to the computer and did the research and said we've had to find. We looked for somebody who specialized in it. She found three people. We were able to get in at the Mayo Clinic in June, and they were the ones who did the uh, they did the final workup. But after a PET scan, they found that I had a small lymphoma in my back, and that came back as B cell follicular lymphoma. So their conclusion was the lymphoma that was causing the uh, inflammation response in my retroperitoneal because they didn't find any B-cell. They didn't find any B-cell involvement when they did biopsies down and down there. So that was about where we were at. And then they, between Mayo Clinic and our local hospital, they came up with a treatment plan and we're in the middle of the treatment plan currently. Yeah, I mean, definitely turn to Maria and talk more about the clinical workflow that you went through. But how are you? How are you doing now, Jack? Like, how are you actually feeling? And you're going through the treatment, and uh, I'm having, you know, mild side effects from the from the uh, chemotherapy that they came up with. 
it's not like a very harsh chemotherapy. It's a bendamustine, and it's not very harsh, but they're giving you a, uh, they're get, after I get my treatment, it's a two-day thing. They're giving me a, um, a bone marrow stimulator so that your counts don't drop as they don't drop. You recover faster. I'm having, I'm having more issues with the, with the bone marrow stimulator that they're giving me than actually with the chemotherapy. Like kind of, you have to lay low for about four or five days after, after like a, after you get it. So that's, that's my, my issue. I, I, Feels so I'm doing very good with what I got going on. I'm still staying active and doing stuff. So people I know from work that they're all, they're all retired and stuff. They're like, I can't believe you're still out doing stuff. Everybody else just packs the door and you see them six, eight months later. I said, well, I said, I don't feel like being that person. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's often the best approach, right? To stay positive and keep active uh, yeah. as you are. And obviously, you have great support in, in Maria, not only uh, as your spouse for 25 years, but also uh, your your clinical background, Maria. So maybe you can give us your your take as both the spouse wearing that hat, but also uh, your nursing uh, provider hat uh, about how this has gone down. Oh, goodness. Chip, uh, I have to tell you, uh, I work with some of the brightest minds in medicine. Uh, it's Cooper University Hospital. They have MD Anderson like an affiliation with MD Anderson. It's a trauma one center. They have a medical schools associated with it. And uh, aside from COVID, this particular um, instance where Jack went in the hospital, I was really surprised uh, when these greatest minds in medicine came up and said, we really don't know what this is, Maria. And then we think it is retroperitoneal fibrosis. And then I asked, well, how do we treat that? Um, and a surgical oncologist with 30 years experience said, I don't know, I'm an oncologist. Um, you know, look it up, Maria, and uh, you're probably going to need to go to Penn or Mayo or something like that. So uh, as I mentioned earlier, I teach in nursing. And so I am a full professor in a small school that is owned by Penn. So I thought, oh, I have plenty of connections. I should be able to get right into Penn and uh, was unable to do so, um, you know, no one really knew what it was to begin with. And uh, so in either case, I was able to get into Mayo Clinic. And and as Jack said, then we went out there and we got uh, the diagnosis. So it just was um, hard for me because they were so baffled. And I'm not used to that. I mean, these are physicians and team members that you know, always have the answer and the clear, clear path. And, you know, so... So from that perspective, I think I was just a little unnerved. Um, and then also too, I think with the uh, with the retroperitoneal fibrosis and not really knowing what that is after 20 plus years experience practicing and looking it up, I have access to really strong databases that give me the evidence. I was able to come up with experts in that field, although rare, we knew we would have to travel if we couldn't get into Penn. You know, and even the pen, uh, it was like people that were coming out of their residencies and fellowships. So anyway, so we were able to, thank God, get in um, to the Mayo in Rochester, Minnesota. So it's just, yeah, it was very, very different for us to go through that from all the perspectives. And the thing is, I knew everybody, it was the hospital. He went to the hospital where I worked. 
So it was very much, we were all on first name basis, you know, colleague, that kind of thing. So, yeah, they were pretty straightforward with us. They've been very collaborative. Um, Mayo, when we went out to Mayo, um, the first uh, rheumatologist, Dr. Michael Coster, his name is, he specializes in retroperitoneal fibrosis. He insisted that we get a PET scan. Insurance wasn't covering it. So he kept uh, doing the appeals. And finally, he said to us, I'm going to keep fighting this, but there's a chance you might have to pay for it. What did they say that was? $8,000? dollars $8,000 for this PET scan. We said, do it. You know, we traveled all the way to Minnesota. <clears throat> we'll fight with the insurance later. So thank God he did do that because then they found this follicular lymphoma. The term he used is paroneoplastic, meaning that that lymphoma is causing the retroperitoneal fibrosis. Ordinarily by itself, they wouldn't even treat the follicular lymphoma. They would watch and wait in someone Jack's age, and they may PET scan them every six months until the cancer actually flares up. But the fact that it was causing this urinary obstruction, uh, it was the opinion of Mayo Clinic and Dr. Coster that we then uh, be treated from an oncologic approach. And then we'll see what sort of is uncovered with the retroperitoneal fibrosis. So that's sort of where we're at right now. He's treatment three out of six. And at this point, uh, the end of the month, right, you'll get a PET scan and uh, they're going to go from there. And the main thing that they're looking at is the urinary obstruction. And so far, he's been doing pretty good. He actually had one. So he went from getting nephrostomy tubes to urinary stents. And the last step, so he gets those replaced every three months. And the last replacement, they were actually able to take out the right stent. So he only has one stent in now. So we're hopeful that with this chemo, so he's getting rituximab and uh, bendamustine. That's the uh, combination that he's getting. And then Nulasta. Nulasta uh, is the one that's given him the hardest time. But anyway, it's like three days of treatment. And then... Um, Basically, they're hopeful that this may reduce the inflammation in that area, and then he'll be able to get the stent out, which is going to be directing the treatment plan. So Mayo will do all overreads of all of our testing and our blood work, our PET scans and whatnot. And MD Anderson and Cooper, they're all working together collaboratively. So we're doing a lot of telehealth with Mayo right now. We're not necessarily traveling out there. Sorry, I trailed off, but that's that's no, that, <laughs> that's really helpful. I love, appreciate the detail. I know audience will as well. So what, um, you know, you've obviously connected with the leaders in Mayo in this particular uh, uh, condition uh, and have a, have a really good clinical setup, it seems, between Cooper and, and Mayo. Uh, can you talk to us a bit about maybe, you know, connecting with other patients or have, has there been, is there like a strong retroperitoneal fibrosis uh, or lymphoma community that you've connected with? Well, actually, he's pointing to me, but I, I only initiated it. He's actually on it all the time. So there's a couple of social media um, groups, and we're pretty uh, active on, on Facebook, just social media, you know, just sharing pictures and whatnot. And there is a retroperitoneal um, RPF for short, if you will. Uh, RPF group on Facebook uh, that is actually run by a very knowledgeable fella that um, you know, it was able to kind of give us more information. And then patients, uh, from what we understand, uh, some patients, it takes three and four years actually to get diagnosed. So Jack is on there all the time. And we're always kind of keeping up to date and communicating with 
other folks around the world, actually, that sometimes we have to use the translator, but <laughs> that that have RPF. Yeah. Did you find that helpful, hon? Yes. They have to, people go on when they're they get their treatment plans and they'll ask people, does anybody know, you know, what are the side effects of this? I'm getting this treatment. Has anybody got it? What are the side effects? How long are you on it? You know, a list of questions. And then other people in the group, other people, if you're going there and you look, you can make a comment, tell them that, you know, oh, I'm getting the same treatment. I had this effect, this side effect. This didn't bother me. And, you know, what your duration of treatment was, that type of thing. So that's that's awesome. Surgical options. Yeah. Yeah. Finding those community support um, groups are important for anyone dealing with the healthcare system. But in particular, it seems for people with uh, rare conditions where it's, you know, it's hard to hard to connect. And I can't imagine how people used to do it before we had you know technology and the ability to connect with people. Because I don't know, do you, do you happen to know how common RPF is? Um, I have to look into that. And clearly, we want to make an osmosis video about it at some point. No, I would need to look up the incidents, and it's it's kind of scattered to be honest with you. I did kind of look into it, and it was like one in one hundred thousand. But then it just depends on where you look um, for that information. In terms of like the actual clinical picture, that can vary as well. Uh, it's a term called idiopathic, uh, whereas most most cases of RPF are unknown for the causes. However, um, there is a strong um, correlation between autoimmune disorders and Jack has Crohn's and Crohn's is an autoimmune disorder. In fact, he had been treated with a medication that also put him at risk for this follicular lymphoma. It's called Remicade. So anyway, their thinking is that um, those two factors put him at the highest risk for this retroperitoneal fibrosis. You know, there's, like I said, there's growing body of evidence and the fact that it's a rare disorder is, you know, uh, kind of limiting the research, I think, because there's just not that many people. But uh, IgG4, which are auto a series of or, autoimmune disorders, that is also something that they tested Jack for. And that was ruled out. So he's negative IgG4, non-IgG4 RPF. Hmm. Very interesting. Yeah, we're definitely going to be doing, as I mentioned, a video on this and leaning on you, Maria, and Jack for your experience as we, as we produce it. So you know, taking it back to uh, everything you've learned in the past six months since the diagnosis and now the treatment plan you're on, what, this is a question for both of you and you can take turns, what advice do you hope our audience, uh, again, current and future healthcare professionals have when dealing with uh, a new, uh, a patient who was just diagnosed with a new condition or a rare condition like RPF? Uh, what, would you, what do you wish they did differently or, or better or, or maybe who treated you who you think everyone should be like? <laughs> what do you think, Jack? Do you want me to start or do you want to answer from your well, perspective? Well, I, I would say like with it, with anything, you know, if you have cancer or anything, like, I, like we're learning, we're learning trial by error, but you you definitely would need to get second opinion, second, third opinions. But everybody we dealt with said too many opinions isn't, yeah, you know, there's, there's never too many opinions. So if you can get in to see somebody and get somebody else's take on it, mm -hmm. that will help you make your in your decision making profit process. You get you know get as much input as you can before you commit to a treatment, the treatment plan. So. 
Oh, so I guess from a, well, you know, I'm seeing it from all angles because obviously, you know, Jack being my husband, but then also as a nurse practitioner, as, as an educator, you know, there's so many different facets when, when this was going on. But one of the things that always comes to mind that we always hear, you know, we teach it, you know, when we precept or, you know, listen to the patient. And in this case, I have to say now, not just because it was my colleagues, but he was my only patient at the time. I hadn't been seeing patients, right? So listen to the patient because especially with rare diseases, they're the ones that are really looking into it. And if you're not familiar with it as a healthcare provider, you know, it's very helpful to listen to the patient. They know sort of what is going on because you know they're the ones that are going through it and then now of course not all signs and symptoms are going to fall into that certain box where you're looking to check things off you know jack didn't present typically with this particular rpf i mean usually patients have abdominal pain and there is a you know it takes again years for it to be diagnosed and this was not the case with him so an example would be this igg4 for example i you know as soon as they were barking up the rpf tree I started to look it up, asked my colleague, could we do a uh, IgG4 lab? And they were like, why IgG4? And I said, well, there's a connection between autoimmune and this IgG4, and they readily did it. And it's not just because I'm a nurse practitioner, but I also think that uh, they were listening to their patient, you know, that this is what we're reading, and they wanted to reassure us that they're doing everything that they can, um, you know, in order to do the connection. So, I think it's also too, it's a very comprehensive approach. Uh, you know, being a nurse practitioner, one of the things that um, nurses and nurse practitioners uh, really are involved very much in is the transitional care piece. You know, here we're dealing with highly specialized physician-led care where the physicians uh, are are making that determine the uh, diagnosis and then the initial treatment plan. But the the transition from there, you don't just, you know, the trap door doesn't just fall out here. You know, you need, okay, do you need help with learning your medications, uh, where to go and whatnot? That was one. And then the telehealth piece, leveraging the technology. Um, you know, we were very fortunate. I work remotely. I was able to get some vacation time and fly out to Minnesota. We're in the, we flew out of Philadelphia but uh, as it turns out, they could have also done a consult via telehealth and insurance, of course, paid for that. So that's something I would say to patients and I actually give advice to as well is, you know, if you can't get in physically to see them, see if you can get a telehealth appointment, uh, which, you know, worked out really well for us. That's great. I mean, and certainly, you know, when you have a one in a hundred thousand condition and, and just a couple centers of excellence like the Mayo Clinic for, for RPF. You know, being able to get to the to the experts uh, nowadays with telehealth is critical, um, and until you can kind of squeeze in for a slot, you know, uh, still on you, Maria. You know, wearing your osmosis hat, you know, developing this education for millions of current and future healthcare professionals. You know, has this influenced kind of what you think we should be doing at Osmosis or Elsevier in terms of uh, covering these conditions, or you know? Uh, teaching our students to, to listen to the patient, as you mentioned, what are some takeaways that you think, will, how, how this will influence your work, even out of osmosis? 
I have a script in my head. So we create uh, videos and we start out by writing a script, right? And one of the things that comes to mind from a nursing standpoint, we have a nursing product and then an advanced practice and nurse practitioner product. And so at the different levels of undergraduate and graduate, I could see having actually two different uh, educational modules and maybe even a certification at some point. You know, I think you mentioned this uh, before that if we combine all the rare disorders, really the majority of diseases would actually, if we can combine them all together. But um, I think mainly like from a nursing standpoint with the bedside piece, if you're in the hospital, you know, looking at the social determinants of health and the educational level of the patient, the understanding you know, sort of from a health literacy standpoint, uh, what family members are involved, it's, you know, for the support, and then also assessing the social determinants of health to make sure that they will be able to transition well from the hospital to the home, and then if not, creating those referrals. So for example, in the hospital, of course, we do physical therapy, occupational therapy, but maybe we need to mobilize a social worker. This is a patient that may not be able to get to and from appointments or may not be familiar with technologies to be able to take advantage of telehealth. All these assessments can be happening while the patient is inpatient. And then also ordering like a home care um, consult for a nurse to come out to the home, make sure that that transition is happening from the RN level, you know, um, and then the nurse practitioner level, I could see that being more of a primary care. Well, I guess it depends on the specialty, but at that particular level, um, you know, when the uh, physician teams have made the diagnosis, you know, following up with that patient from a disease management standpoint, uh, you know, making sure that all the preventative health is still going on. So for example, Jack recently got his flu shot, pneumonia vaccination, and was boosted again for COVID. You know, these are things a lot of patients of mine, especially when they're going through these specialty visits, I see a cardiologist, I see an oncologist, you need to see your primary care provider. And, you know, need to see a physician at this point because it's such a high level type of um, disorder that he's going through, but then also too in between, you know, having someone that can help you through those transitions. There's just so much to it. I mean, so much that we could probably fill up another podcast um, that I can absolutely see needing a, a several several videos just based on certainly retroperitoneal fibrosis, but just the whole what do you tell patients that have a rare disorder? It's pretty scary when these great minds are telling you, we don't know. You know, some of the brightest minds in the world are telling you, we don't know. That's that's pretty scary from where I sit, from where Jack sits. So um, I think I think it's up to us. Honestly, we're obligated as, you know, professionals to kind of let's address this and let's get it out in the open so that we do know that, oh, yes, you do have a rare disorder, but here's where you can go for that. These are the resources that are available to you. Um, this is how you help transition this patient. This is what this patient's going to need. They're going to need to see this specialist every six months. In our case, they didn't even know which specialist handled it. We found that out on our own, that it's rheumatology, by the way. Initial diagnosis is rheumatology, right? You would think oncology, but it's rheumatology in his case. So anyway, those are some of our, I mean, like I said, it could be a completely new podcast just on, 
nursing, uh, nurse practitioner, and then of course, when the nurse practitioner should be referring over to the specialist and this whole physician level of care. The nurse practitioner needs to know what they don't know and also what what they need to elevate to the next level. And there's a lot to that, you know, you have to really be self-aware of what you can and can't handle uh, at the level that we're at. We we found that we found when we went to the Mayo Clinic, our rheumatologist said, "Well, you have you have something that's rare, and when when nobody knows what it is or what to do with it, they kick it to rheumatology." <laughs> so <laughs> he said, "That's why you're seeing me." So he said, "That's what we do here." <laughs> Amazing no, experience. Very- eighty minutes, Shiv. They spent eighty minutes. Doctor Coster, our first appointment was eighty minutes with him. Wow. It was just the most That's amazing incredible. healthcare experience, Mayo Clinic, you know? That's incredible, yeah. Well, again, the, the nuance here, the, I think this is, again, one reason we're so focused on rare diseases because, one, it's, you know, it's very scary for the patients and the clinicians, like you, Maria, you're a clinician and a family member um, to get a diagnosis that nobody knows much about or very few people know much about. So that's a whole, like, course and how do you, you know, that we could develop together potentially. And we're talking about that in addition to the specific conditions. But then a lot of the major themes we try to get across at osmosis, like listening to your patient, uh, being, uh, you know, social determinants of health, care centricity or care, care coordination with uh, multiple different stakeholders um, are things that, you know, apply to diabetes just as they much apply to retroperitoneal fibrosis. But in the in the second case, they're a lot more stark because it comes out in a much bigger way. Patient literacy clearly is a big one. Um, so yeah, um, I know we're, I've taken you guys five minutes over what we had allotted, but I did want to end with one question, which was, you know, what else would you like our, le- our learners to know right now about, about anything, about you, about RPF, about your health journey, or just about being good, clinicians and and providers? Well, from my perspective, uh, as I already, you know, went through, but I really think that we, uh, we need to learn more about the rare disorders uh, from every level of care. Also, what we all do um, as far as referrals go, um, we're also involved in continuing education here and, and what referrals you make. So, for example, someone would need probably physical therapy, occupational therapy if they've been in the hospital for a while, a social worker if any of the assessments that you make. So just when to elevate to a different level of care or or when to refer to nutrition or any of the other disciplines. So the interprofessional approach, I think, is is one of the things that and that and leverage in the technology. That is the biggest thing, you know, that I, I'm very familiar with technology and do telehealth visits. But in this case, it was so helpful to have they have our backs, you know, so it's really nice that Mayo is in there you know, overreading things, you know, to get that second opinion. What yeah. what about you, Jack? As far as the rare diseases type thing, I guess when you get, you know, I never heard of Crohn's disease before I was diagnosed with that. I never heard of retroperitoneal fibrosis until somebody you know has it or you get something and they refer to that. Then all of a sudden it seems like there's all these people that, you know, oh, yeah, I had that too. But you don't hear about it because, yeah, some people, I mean, people don't broadcast. A lot of people don't broadcast their everyday, uh, you know, on a daily basis. 
like I would say, like on social media, oh, I'm feeling really bad today. Like when I was getting treatment on Maria, it's like, are you going to let people know? And I'm like, well, I don't, I don't want to be the Debbie Downer that brings the world down. I just, <laughs> maybe it'll just get, we'll get treated, it'll go away, and that'll be it. I don't want to drag everybody else down with it. <laughs> so, but I could see people feeling helpless if they can't get the resources they need. I think the getting the resources and having somebody pointing you in the right direction. I have Maria to, to do, I had Maria to advocate for me, but if, if I didn't have her and I was in the hospital, I mean, I, I could have been taken down the rabbit hole. Like, and I'd be like people in the retro peritoneal site. They're like, I'm not getting, I took them three years to get my diagnosis because no, nobody pointed them in the, nobody pointed them in the direction that they needed to go. And look, I was told uh, you didn't have any symptoms. And I said, no, I, I had no symptoms. I'm out, I'm out golfing four days a week. I go to the gym, you know, um, I would say I'm active for 60 years old, but I also told the doctor, I said, I turned 60 and the wheels fell. <laughs> <laughs> so, but you know, it's, I think people need to get that, that directional piece if you don't have somebody to advocate for them, like the educational end would be having having somebody, you know, the nurses or whoever's doing the videos that, to take care of the patient by directing them in the right direction to what they, you know, even if you, you're you not, that's not your specialty, but you can give them resources and say, go A, B, C, if it, you know, if you do, that's a dead end, you go to this, this is the route you need to take. I feel like, like, yeah, like people need help. And the fact that I was able to be there and persist with, okay, yeah, we'll do the PET scan, even though the insurance is going to cover it. Most people don't realize, you know, that you can appeal a decision that insurance company makes. So this persistence piece, I think, is key. And then also I noticed, too, that, um, you know, a lot of people didn't know what was going on. They never heard of retro parts of healthcare professionals. And I would encourage them to read the notes from the specialist who is diagnosing. It shows you the full workup. It shows you what what that professional is thinking, and it will help expand your knowledge base as well. And then as a family nurse practitioner, I'm very adept at reading all different specialist notes and then putting all, everything on the same page for that patient. And I think that's why it's so important that the family provider and the family physicians are involved in a patient's care. They, they tend to get very busy with the specialist appointments and they need to kind of come to home base and see their PCPs as well. So th those are some of the things that I think we learn together that, yeah, you need, you need help. Like, even if it's just a family member or recording the sessions that you have with COVID, it's been really challenging. Visitors can't come in. So when uh, when when sometimes I ran home to get a shower or whatever, I'd say, Jack, record the meeting with the doctor. If a doctor comes in, ask him if it's okay to record or ask him if it's okay to FaceTime with me. Because even though two of us were in the room, sometimes we heard two different things. <laughs> you know? so, sometimes when we did the Mayo Clinic consult, we were like, are, are you okay? A hematology, I'm sorry. We also had a hematology consult and they started the plan of care for Jack with the uh, follicular lymphoma. 
I said, are you okay if we record this? You know, because there's just so much information coming at you and it takes a while to digest it. And sometimes we went back to that recording because, oh, that's what they said. That's why they're doing this. Or that's why the staging is this and whatnot. So anyway. Those are some really great insights and we're definitely going to capture them. And, and obviously, Maria, excited to work with you and, and your team, both in the nursing side, but also the, the medical side to create this content that hopefully trains not just the students and healthcare professionals, but also patients, I mean, and, and, and patient navigators and case managers who are the ones who are active, actively in the, uh, in the room and trying to help that patient and their family, you know, find, connect those dots, as Jack was saying, A, B, C, D, this is the, the path you go. So it, I really appreciate you both sharing your story. And, and as you know, Maria, like our vision, our mission at Osmosis, everyone who cares for someone will learn about Osmosis. And we did that because, you know, we realized that Ultimately, we are the patients. We are everyone who has a body here is going to be a patient themselves or has a loved one with a patient. And unfortunately, you know, I know Jack, nobody wants you to have gone through this, though obviously you going through this has informed Maria, which will inform osmosis to provide the best education to produce the most empathetic and caring clinicians we can. So really appreciate you both coming on and sharing the story. And obviously, Jack, let us know if there's anything we can be doing to be more helpful to you and, and your family as you go through this. Sounds great. Thank you for your support, yeah. too. I, our teams have been fabulous with uh, supporting us through this. Absolutely. Well, thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. Remember to do your, do your part to raise line and strengthen the healthcare system. We're all in this together. Take care. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our episodes at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. Mm-hmm.